I've got one of my own here. Just two months, at the most three months, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the early church has its first big clash with authority. It happened because of a remarkable miracle that Peter and John had performed on a 40-year-old regular beggar at the beautiful gate of the temple. The man had never walked. Just imagine the condition of his legs, his ankles, his feet, the bones, the muscles, the nerves that enlivened them. Yet, responding to the command of Peter, Peter reached out and took hold of his hand. Responding to that command, he gets up and he doesn't totter around trying to keep his balance. He's walking and he's leaping. He's like a 20-year-old, not a 40-year-old that's just been healed. And the crowd have seen this man day after day and now they see him healed. And they quickly assemble. What's happened? What's this? What's it all about? So, of course, Peter takes his opportunity. And he explains how it happened. He said, look, it's not our ability. It's not our power that has done this. It is the authority and the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you handed over to be killed. God has raised him. He's alive. He's in glory. He's in the presence of God and he has done this thing that you've just been witnessing now. It's the power of Jesus. And he said, if you look in your scriptures, that's our Old Testament, if you look in your scriptures, you will see that this was prophesied that it would happen. And you need to repent, to turn to God for the forgiveness of your sins. Not only that, through Jesus, many people all over the earth, not just Jews, are going to be blessed as well. These are remarkable words, and their ears must have been tingling. They'd not heard things like this before. And the authorities didn't like it. While they were still speaking, and of course they didn't go on for five minutes like I just have. They, they were going extensively. And while they were talking, the leaders of the Jews come up with the temple and the temple guard, the officers, and uh, they say, you come along with us. And they put them in jail for the night. And then the next morning, the rulers of the Jews assemble and their theologians and so on, and they call Peter and John to appear before them. And... Uh, there was Caiaphas, the high priest, Annas, his father-in-law, John, the son of Annas, who was going to be high priest later on, and uh, others of their family and still others. These were men that had just conspired to have an illegal trial and to have Jesus put to death. They had conspired for false witnesses at the trial. What kind of a trial 
are Peter and John going to have now? They start to question them. And uh, Peter and John are greatly influenced by the Holy Spirit, we're told. And they repeat to these leaders that it is by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ that this man has been healed. They say this, I'll quote, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. That took courage. They were guilty men. They said, you rejected him. And it was as if you builders throw away a stone that uh, was no use to you. But God has made this stone absolutely a keystone in the building. You didn't understand. You didn't recognize him. And then they said something very important. They said this. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So he's saying, you rejected this Jesus. You crucified him. You think God is pleased with you. But don't you understand, there is no way that anyone can be in a right relationship with God except through this Jesus whom you've rejected. And just as they told the common people that they should turn to God and repent, they are, he, he's saying by implication exactly the same to these leaders. You need to turn to God and to repent. And these were men who prided themselves on their religion. The Christian gospel is the same today. Like those men, we are accountable for the lives that we lead. We will all have to give account one day. We will all fall short on that day. We will not be compared to other human beings. You know sometimes we know I'm not as bad as that or so on. We will not be compared to other human beings we will be judged by God's absolute standards. And if we are honest with ourselves, if we try and see ourselves as God sees us, we know that we will fail. Our words, our actions, our secret thoughts, our motives will all let us down. They will be seen for what they are. But Peter and John's message, the gospel message, the Christian message, is that there is a way that the slate might be wiped clean, that we may be totally forgiven. Our shortcomings, our shabbinesses, our sins can all be done away through trust and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Peter and John were saying, we can be saved. That's the word they use. We can be saved. We can be delivered on the judgment day. And in fact, that 
deliverance, or to use their word, that salvation, actually starts now. It changes our relationship with God. And this is a a definition of a Christian, a very good one. A Christian is a forgiven person. Do you notice they said this was exclusive? Salvation is found in no one else, they said. Jesus himself said that just before his crucifixion. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And he said similar things at other times in his three-year ministry. They weren't making this up. They were repeating the teaching that Jesus had given to them. There is no other way to be right with God, to know our sins forgiven, to know the promise of eternal life, except in Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who died for sinners and whom God raised from the dead and glorified. I don't know if I've raised some hackles saying this. It's not a very uh, politically correct thing to say that Jesus is the only way. But this is what the New Testament says. This is our message. And you say, well, what about tolerance? Well, tolerance is not saying that everybody is right. Tolerance is allowing the other person to hold their view even though you disagree. And... uh, The apostles were not trying to steamroll the leaders. They were bearing witness to the truth in Jesus. There is no other way. No discipline. No philosophy. No religion, no matter what good points there may be in it. No other can make us right with God. They said salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Ah, the authorities were astonished. Can you picture the scene? They were astonished at the conviction and the authority of Peter and John. They'd had no formal theological training and here they were talking to their betters Learned men, some of them. And they were astonished. And no doubt, too, they were astonished at the courage that they showed when they saw that uh, Peter and John were not the least afraid of them, no matter what they had done to Jesus. They realized that they had been with Jesus. They had a problem The man was standing right there. Do you think he was standing still? (laughs) I think he was probably still jiggling around. What could they do? Well, well, they'd have to put a stop to it, wouldn't they? They couldn't say, well, it wasn't a real healing. It was a cheat. It was just some psychological nonsense, a psychosomatic healing or something. Everybody knew. So they said, well, we'll put a stop to this. And so they say to them, you are not to speak or to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. 
Don't do it again. And now, Peter and John make their second very significant statement. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. See, they and the authorities had something in common. If you were to ask them, who has our first loyalty? They would all say, God himself. That, that was agreed. It's a long Jewish tradition. You see it in the Old Testament, in Moses, the prophets, and of course, stories of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, and so on. But Peter and John are saying to them, you are at odds with God. You are only men, and we must obey God rather than you. This was a deliberate refusal to obey these Jewish authorities. They weren't being asked. They weren't being advised. They were being commanded. Be quiet. Say nothing. They have already said that salvation was found in nobody else, only in Jesus. And if that is true, they shouldn't keep quiet. And in the next chapter, well, we see that they really had no intention of obedience in this particular area. We read that they're hauled up again before the authorities. And the authorities said, we told you strictly that you were not to speak anymore. And you read it there in chapter 5, they said, we must obey God rather than men. What happens when they let go on this occasion? They immediately go back to their own people and they hold a prayer meeting. And uh, in their prayer meeting, they, uh, they outline the fact that uh, God is great and glorious. They outline the uh, hostility to God that appeared sometimes in the Old Testament. And then, they don't ask, Lord, would you change the minds of the authorities? They don't ask, Lord, well, would you forgive us if we keep quiet a bit? They say, Lord, you see their threats. Now help us with boldness that we will speak the word of God. Without this kind of insistence, the church would never have spread, of course. Now I'd just like to say three things very briefly. Christians say the same today. Being a Christian is not something you do if you are allowed. Being a Christian is something you are, come what may. That's a Christian. And there are people all around the world today who are living that out. I read just this past week of a pastor in a certain province in Laos. Now, there are many examples. I just read this one. A man who is 50 years old, two years ago he was forced by the local authorities to sign a document that he wouldn't speak anymore in the name of Jesus and he wouldn't lead people to Jesus anymore. And yet in the past year, so many people have been affected by his life 
and by his testimony that there have been many turning to Christ. And so the authorities said, right, here you are, and they throw him in jail. Here's a man that believes he should obey God rather than men. Go to China and you will find pastors and church leaders in trouble today in China because they will not conform to state-controlled church. They feel that they must be free to preach the word of God. And I could multiply this. We haven't got time. We have to obey God rather than men. The New Testament tells us that Christians should be good citizens. We should submit to authority. We should honor the authorities. We should do it for conscience sake. We should pay our taxes. We should pray for those in authority. Positively, we should do good. Not necessarily what's called do-gooders, trying to boss other people around, but to do good. Not to be seen or praised. Be helpful. Be encouraging. Work for the common good. You might put in here even a community center. This is the kind of thing that the Christians are expected to be in the New Testament. Christians are not to disregard the laws of the land, to cheat, refuse to pay their taxes, or ignore their duties as citizens, or to live selfishly. Those are the general instructions for Christians in the New Testament. But the second thing is this. Christians have a higher authority. The week before Jesus was crucified, they, they tried to trip him up and they asked him questions about authority. And if you remember, he said, you give to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things which are God's. And that these early Christians recognized This higher authority is obvious from what happened next, as I described it to you just now. They had this prayer meeting, and they took this whole matter to their higher authority. And they said, we know that we have to go on. You help us to be bold and strong. They had no intention of keeping quiet in this matter. This was where the Authority of government was contrary to the authority of God. And it's happening in many countries all over the world. The organization Open Doors has uh, a list of countries, 50 countries, where persecution is rife today. Not all of that is strictly government persecution, but it's often the fact that the government turns a blind eye to what is going on. In our own country, with its great Christian heritage, Christians should do all they can to honor the authorities, to keep the law, be good citizens. But if, God forbid, there is a clash between government laws and God's way, according to the New Testament, there is only one course of action open to the Christian. He has 
a higher authority to follow. Those who think that Christians can be compelled to do certain things by law have not read the New Testament and they have forgotten their history. Christians have a higher loyalty. What causes this determination to put God first? What motivates people to behave like this? After all, there are people who will give their lives in opposition to a tyrannical government. We've been seeing that in the last two years in the Middle East. There are people that will give their lives for democracy, etc. What motivates the Christian? Well, there is the truth about God, about Jesus, about sin, about judgment, about the life to come. There is all of that, of course. But there's more. There is the Christian's personal experience of the love of God towards him towards her. We've already said it this morning, a Christian as one who knows he's in the wrong by nature. By nature he has no hope of eternal life. He cannot stand the scrutiny of God, but he knows that God gave his son for people like us. He knows that. And he knows that, undeserving as it is, through faith in Jesus we may be forgiven and we become inheritors of all the promises of God. The Christian knows that. He says with the Apostle Paul, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what kind of love is this? One of the modern songs we sing, wonderful grace that gives what I don't deserve, pays me what Christ has earned, then lets me go free. And the Christian says, if that is true, if Jesus the sinless one died, that I might forgiven, be forgiven, that I might inherit the promises of God, then I owe him everything. It's not just that certain things are true, that makes the Christian recognize the higher authority, but the amazing fact that the love of God has been shown to me. It's a higher loyalty. One old hymn says, Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in his name. Another old hymn which has been sung for more than 300 years over many denominations says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the motivation. So it remains simply to ask ourselves, 
Does this truth move us? Does it motivate me to change my lifestyle? Does it affect my decisions? My life direction? Does my understanding of the love of God for me, does it move me as a Christian to seek to please God? To meet with his people? To read his word more carefully? To gather around the Lord's table? To put him first? Does it move me to put God and his word before the words of men?